0: Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast two distinguished scientists. Uh, we're going to share some developments in terms of organ engineering. So first of all, we have Dr. Jeff Ross. Dr. Ross is CEO of MiroMatrix. And uh, it's also my pleasure to welcome Dr. Stephen Badlack. Dr. Badlack is Deputy Director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. So, Dr. Ross, perhaps you can begin by just giving a little bit of background about yourself and uh, your
1: company. Great. Well, thanks for having me today. As you mentioned, I'm CEO of Mural Matrix. Our company is really dedicated towards bioengineering transplantable organs. Internally, our mission is to eliminate the organ transplant waiting list by bioengineering transplantable organs based on the technology that we've really advanced, and that's perfusion decelerization and perfusion resellerization. Personally, I have a doctorate in cell biology, developmental biology, and genetics from the University of Minnesota, but really spent my life in regenerative medicine, that interface between the body and therapies, with really trying to look at the promise of regenerative medicine with the notion of how do we develop cures instead of just therapies.
0: Dr. Bilek is no stranger to the regenerative medicine podcast. He was one of the early pioneers that joined us when we began this series many years ago. We talked about it. Like just a brief introduction, if you would, please, in terms of your interests.
2: Yep, thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I'm the deputy director of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. I'm a physician as well as a research scientist and have spent most of my career developing uh, biologic scaffold materials, such as similar to the one used in the technology that Jeff's going to describe, bimero matrix for the reconstruction of functional tissues.
0: So perhaps the place to launch this discussion is let's talk a little bit about organ availability and organ shortage. What kind of problem are you gentlemen trying to solve?
1: Today there's 120,000 patients on an organ transplant waiting list. Many of those will never see an organ. I think it's estimated that about 20 people die each day in the U.S. alone because the organs aren't available for transplant. What we're really looking at in... in Like I mentioned before, our mission is how do you alleviate that? How do you allow those who really need an organ access to an organ? And those 120,000, right, those are the healthiest of the healthy. So it's estimated that there's over a million patients who could benefit from an organ transplant if they were available today.
0: So tell us a little bit about how you're trying to approach this particular problem.
1: Our technology and our approach is really perfusion decelerization and resellerization, and that's that notion of taking an organ. And our preferred organ that we actually take is from a pig, which anatomically is very similar to a human, and today is really a byproduct of the meat industry, where many hearts, livers, lungs are actually discarded. What we're able to do is take that organ, remove all the cellular material from it through a process called perfusion decelerization, where we essentially cannulate it and then push or flush a mild detergent through it, which then dissolves all the cellular material, but leaves the protein scaffold in place. I kind of say it's analogous to remodeling a house. If one thinks of the cells as drywall, it's really going in and taking that out, but what you're left with, right, is still the architectural structure. My kitchen's still a kitchen. Uh, Bathroom's a bathroom, and you still have the plumbing, and that's essentially what we're doing here is just remove the cellular material, so remove all the pig cells, and then be able to repopulate that organ or scaffold with human cells to then reanimate a transplantable organ.
0: Dr. Badlack, you have this interesting and unique collaboration between Dr. Ross and his colleagues and your team. Can you tell us a little bit about this collaboration?
2: Sure. The protein scaffold that Jeff is referring to is also called the extracellular matrix which is the biologic scaffold material that we've spent many years investigating for a variety of uses. And the beauty of the decellularization protocol that Jeff was describing is that if it's done properly, it retains all of the ultrastructural architecture of the native liver and it would also contain the composition of that naturally occurring extracellular matrix. These features are really very important for cells that are then later added back to be able to recognize and attach to and see as friendly and grow and proliferate and form the new organ. So our role in our collaboration is helping to optimize a material that's left in the methods and characterizing the result of recellularizing this scaffold material. The decellularization technology is mirror matrix's technology. And you know, our expertise, if you will, involves understanding how the cells in the matrix interact with each other. So together we make a pretty good team. So
0: I believe I understand correctly that the decellularization technology is reasonably mature. And the focus at the moment is on the recellularization is that
2: correct? Well, from my standpoint, Jeff and the Miral Matrix group have really done an outstanding job of the decellularization end of it. Recellularization, and there are options on what would be the best way to do it and what would be the source of the cells. You know, f- from my perspective, the ideal cell population would be the patient's own cells, that is, the patient that needs the organ. For example, in an ideal world, some stem cells from that patient would be harvested, expanded, or that is, multiplied in culture, and then differentiated into the particular cell type that's needed. And in the case of a liver, for example, there'd be liver cells and the other types of cells that are there. And that way, when the recellularized organ matures, it's actually the patient's own cells. And one of the problems with even the patients who are lucky enough to get a donor organ is that, in current technology, they need to be on immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their life so that they don't reject the organ. If this approach works, they would no longer need to be on this immunosuppressive regimen. So not only would they have available organs, but all of the morbidity associated with those types of drugs would not exist. So the promise is really remarkable.
1: So I think if I could just expand a little bit on what Steve mentioned there, too. I mean, early on what he talked about it with the promise of this technology is if the decelerization is done well. And I think that's an area that Miro Matrix we've invested a lot of time into of how do you really standardize the decelerization process to ensure that you have a very consistent outcome and that you're doing minimal manipulation to any of the extracellular matrix during the process. And one way that we were able to achieve that is, We've commercialized two products, Miro mesh and MiroDerm, where we actually take a full porcine liver, perfusion decelerize it, and then it created a soft tissue reinforcement mesh called Miro mesh or a wound care product called MiroDerm that we receive 510K clearance on. But that's really demonstrated our commitment to ensuring that the process is very well characterized and very consistent. That allows us then to move into the resellerization side of it to be very consistent and make sure that we're always starting with that same type of starting material, which then allows us and moving forward with that as well to have very consistent products as we work through some of the things that Steve mentioned on that resellerization process. So overall, decelerization is a very rapid process. Within about four days, we can go from a fully cellularized organ to a completely decellularized organ that's ready to be resellerized. On the resellerization side, it's it's trending towards about three to five weeks for resellerization as we look at putting the cells back in growing them characterizing them and making sure that they have all the nutrition during that growth phase
0: so looking at it from a positive perspective in the order of six weeks you could go from a porcine liver to a uh, liver that's suitable for an implant in a human being is that correct
1: Yeah, that's how it's trending today, if you look at our timelines and and what our current research is showing us.
0: That's very impressive. So uh, why did you start with liver? I noticed on your website you have some other organs you're working on as well.
1: They all have their unique needs, but when we look at liver specifically, there's 40,000 patients who die of end-stage liver failure annually. There's no drugs. There's no devices. There's no dialysis for these patients we really have this patient population that has no alternative therapies. So when we looked at that, that was one of our main driving factors. The other two important factors are, is that the liver is the one organ that can regenerate itself, and that you only need 20% liver function to be viable. So you combine those two together, and that allows us a unique opportunity to not necessarily develop the whole liver, but to develop a smaller portion of the liver, like a living donor size that then we'd be able to transplant back inside that patient and then hopefully assume those same type of kinetics where within the patients now these cells are in a pristine matrix and continue to proliferate and bring that liver back to its native side while then being able to serve this really underserved population of patients.
0: I gather from your comments and the material I've read you've made some significant progress. How long will it be before you can consider a human child?
1: We're really dedicated to moving into the clinic as fast as we possibly can. One of the key features that we looked at very early on was once you're able to decelerize that whole organ, as I mentioned before, you still have all the vascular channels in there, but they're no longer lined with endothelial cells or the vascular cells. So if one was refused blood through there, it certainly can go down to the capillary beds, but it would quickly thrombose. Platelets are going to aggregate and other things associated with thrombosis with that exposed collagen. So one of the key things was to demonstrate that you could re-endothelialize or replace the vascular cells back into the vessels and then anastomose that back in and ensure that you could get continuous perfusion through the graft because without that, it doesn't matter what other cell types you have in there, the organ's never going to live. So as I mentioned, we've dedicated a lot of time and effort towards that, and we recently just submitted a manuscript on this where we're able to re-endothelialize porcine livers, both with porcine endothelial cells or human endothelial cells, transplant those back into preclinical models and get long-term sustained perfusion using advanced CT scanning with contrast to really definitively show that we're able to get that continuous perfusion and functional vasculature back into an implant model. And then beyond that, we've also worked a lot on repopulating the liver with hepatocytes and cholangiocytes. So we're really at a point that we have all these three cell types going back inside the liver and we're seeing good function.
0: For those who have an interest and a need for this type of technology, are we talking two years, five years, ten years?
1: So I'm always aggressive in my timelines because I really want to get therapies to patients as fast as I possibly can. Right now we're targeting, you know, as early as the end of 2020 with first human clinical studies, if things continue to progress at the pace that they're going today. But I, I believe it'll be in that timeline.
0: That's impressive. So... Let me ask another question from Dr. Balak and Dr. Ross. There's other technologies, uh, so sort of competing approaches to organ engineering, 3D printed organs and so forth. What's the advantage of this particular approach over the, the other techniques?
2: 3D printing is receiving a lot of attention because it's pretty impressive technology to be able to plate cells down in certain layers and recreate a tissue from an image, basically. The limiting factor on that, in my opinion, is that you program the printing to replace what you believe to be the gold standard or the perfect, not only cell layers and organization, but also the extracellular matrix. And I can tell you from the extracellular matrix standpoint that we don't understand the organization of all of the molecules that constitute the matrix what makes it an ideal substrate for cells to attach to you know how exactly are the endothelial cells that line the sinusoids that, that Jeff was referring to adherent to the underlying matrix and if we can't describe what the gold standard is then what we're simply doing is printing something that looks like it's close and that's a bit discouraging i know but what it just simply does for me is reaffirm the complexity and the beauty of what the naturally occurring materials are. Mother Nature has spent literally you know, hundreds of millions of years developing these sorts of materials. So we really, in my opinion, are better off by harvesting what she's created rather than trying to reproduce it in the lab because, quite frankly, I don't think we're ever going to get there.
0: Very good. Dr. Ross, anything to add to that?
1: No, I, I think Steve said it very well. And you know what's great about Steve and our collaboration, too, is just expertise on the extracellular matrix, the complexity of it, and what we're able to do by preserving what nature already created with perfusion decelerization. Instead of trying to re-engineer something that we don't have a great knowledge, or at least at the nano level today, on that organization and function and, and signaling back to the cells. Because we know that it's a very symbiotic relationship between a pristine matrix in cells versus disease matrix in cells and the type of cellular responses that you're going to get from that in the end.
0: Well, let me pursue another area briefly. So with organ transplantation, one of the biggest issues is immunosuppression. So I believe that if I understand this technique correctly that you folks are pursuing, there are no immunosuppression issues.
1: The long term goal of this would be able to repopulate a graft with human specific cells or patient specific cells, which we believe would negate the need for immunosuppression, which is really the holy grail. How do we give a patient an organ that they can accept and no longer need long term immunosuppression because many of the long term complications associated with current organ transplant? has secondary effects from that immunosuppression today.
2: And I think the other advantage of it is that by using the naturally occurring extracellular matrix scaffold material, we know that there is an extraordinarily high degree of similarity between the extracellular matrix of a pig and a human, and a rat, and a horse, and virtually all species because it's so important and highly conserved through evolution. In fact, the other materials that have been made of these cross-species extracellular matrix have been used for a lot of other clinical applications like Jeff was referring to repairing hernias and musculoskeletal structures and more than 8 to 10 million human patients have been implanted with these materials with no evidence of any rejection phenomenon whatever so we know that the scaffold material itself will not cause an adverse immune response. There's no need for immunosuppression. And as Jeff was saying, if we could utilize the patient's own cells, essentially what would be created is a customized organ for that individual patient. Really, the cost savings to the medical reimbursement system would be just gigantic. Maybe Jeff knows the statistics more than me. The last I read, it was like something like $30,000 a year per patient just for those sorts of drugs. And even with those drugs, there's still an average of one hospitalization every year to a year and a half per patient. So there's all sorts of problems.
1: I completely agree with that, Steve. Your numbers are correct.
0: Let me ask the question. What's the biggest challenge that you and other biotech companies face in moving this technology forward?
1: You know, one thing that you always face as an early-stage biotech company is funding, bringing in the appropriate level of funding to be able to advance a technology like this to get it all the way into the clinic. We've been successful on that by having a set of angel investors and others who have invested in the company to really allow this to move forward. But the other thing that's been helpful is we've commercialized multiple products. So to Steve's point a second ago about the immune response associated with these materials are lack of immune response that seen in the clinic with other extracellular matrix, very similar results that we've seen in our current products today that are the perfusion decellularized liver matrix that really sets up that next step for the whole organ. So funding certainly one of those. Regulatory is something that always takes a while, but I can say the Alliance of Regenerative Medicine and, and Congress and even the FDA have been making strides in that. If you look at the RMAC designation and some of the other things that have come through to really help fast-track cell therapy and tissue-engineered products has really opened up the field as well to allow additional funding to come in. So those are two, you know, barriers, but those barriers are being dealt with. You know, the other challenge is also talent, scientific talent. So Steve's institution, other institutions do a great job at training scientists, but we definitely still need more biomedical engineers. We need more cell biologists who really understand the growth profile and and bringing together that engineering to engineer whole organs.
2: And I think one of the things to note from Jeff's comments are that these barriers we're talking about, none of them are scientific barriers, like there's some great discovery that's needed in order to make this happen. This is really a matter of bringing together cross-disciplinary teams giving them the adequate resources to to basically do the trial and error it takes to get the right cells implanted in the right order and the right perfusion media and such. This is really not requiring any sort of great scientific breakthrough. In one way, it's a little bit frustrating because it's such a tremendous problem, and really the only thing that is lacking, uh, as Jeff was saying, is to recognize that this is a solvable problem if enough resources are provided, and look at the good that we'll be able to do. I think the working relationship between Merrill Matrix and uh, the McGowan Institute at the University of Pittsburgh is an excellent example of an industry-academic collaboration where the, the best of both worlds can combine to bring something to the public sector that otherwise may not happen.
0: Dr. Badalag, is this technique we've been discussing applicable
2: to other organs? This generic approach of decellularizing an organ followed by recellularizing the organ is not unique to the liver. Uh, the same general principles and approach apply to the heart and to kidneys and to the lungs. There are unique challenges to each because of the way that the plumbing needs to be hooked up in the body and the cell types that need to be used but the approach is very similar. So you can only tackle so many things at one time, and the liver's a great place to start, but the hope for organ replacement beyond the liver is certainly present.
0: Dr. Ross and Dr. Badalak, I'd like to thank both of you for joining us today and sharing with us your interesting and pioneering work in terms of organ engineering. We'll post on the podcast website the link to Dr. Ross's and Dr. Badalak's websites if you want to further explore their pioneering study. We welcome suggestions, and you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And until we meet again, thank you for listening.